This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Hi, and welcome to Discovery. This week, four more podcasts from Seneca journalism students. First up, NFTs, non-fungible tokens. NFTs, it's the buzzword that investors and collectors are throwing a lot of money at. NFTs are here to stay. I'm just fascinated by it, all of it. Can you please explain what's an NFT? Hello, 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 and welcome to the first episode of Digitist. My name is Arshi Alexander, and I'm about to open your eyes to a revolutionary technology that in the recent year, especially 2021, just opened a gigantic door to the Narnia of art itself. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce you to the world of NFTs. So, NFTs or non-fungible tokens are digital assets that represent a wide range of unique intangible and tangible items. But what is the meaning of non-fungible? Non-fungible is any asset that is unique and that cannot be replaced, like real estate and art. You purchase them, and later on if you don't want them, you simply sell or transfer that asset to a new owner. Simple. Let me give you some examples of what kind of NFTs are out there on the internet. Digital sport cards, pixelated collectible arts like CryptoPunk and CryptoCats, video game items, and digitally created arts from digital illustrations to 3D projects, you name it, my favorite. But the difference between collecting a physical rare Pokemon card and a digital rare Pokemon NFT is that the physical version can be a very detailed replica of the original one and nobody can ever know. The NFT version, on the other hand, needs to go through blockchain technology. It will be verified and coded using cryptography and smart contracts and registers on the global network as original and unique. When a digital asset is minted, which means it's turned into an NFT, all the data will be available on the blockchain network. Who made it? When was it made? And who currently owns it? And every time one of these assets is sold or transferred to a new owner, the data of that asset will get an update and we can still see the history of ownership and proof of originality. But why NFTs are the future and how it is helping artists all around the world? Faith and Jared both have been artists all their lives and recently they started transforming their paintings and their physically created art into digital art. What was your reaction when you first heard about NFTs? I would love to answer this question. At first, I was like, what the f*** is this? And how do I get involved? And then I became like a woman possessed and... I just went deep down the rabbit hole, Googling and learning as much as I could about it because NFTs to me just represent all the possibilities and for artists to finally get their power back because one of the most beautiful things about NFTs is that you can now connect an artist directly to the connect to 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 the collector without having a middleman or a gatekeeper or gallerist involved. And it doesn't matter if you went to school for fine arts or what your skill level is, like this marketplace is pretty much open to anybody. And so I am obsessed. There's no going back for me now. 
How about you, Jared? How was your experience? Faith is the one who was in my ear a lot about it. So I actually got it secondhand from her and then I started doing some more research myself. But um, I was definitely skeptical and I had no idea that you could translate graphic work because I just I think we all just kind of posted on our Instagrams or our socials and just expect to get validation out of likes. But now we see that we can actually make something off all this artwork creating. And it's, it's actually really beautiful. I'd also like to add that one of the things because everyone heard this news about people selling a JPEG for $69 million. And I think that title, People Sells Art for $69 Million, is a really horrible way of showing the industry because it's not, what, what they fail to mention is that that piece of art was a collection of like, he did a drawing every single day for 5,000 days. And that art was a combination of all 5,000 of those pictures in one. So I think people are really getting the wrong idea. They're like, oh my God, art, $70 million. Like, how do I get involved? and they think it's like a big money grab but actually it's not and it's so much more about supporting digital artists because at the end of the day a picture can still be copied and pasted but it's more about a collector wanting to support a digital artist and finally having a way to do so um i, th I think just going along with what faith said is people do look at it as a money grab so they enter this industry and they think they can make a quick buck out of it but artists you know we really we've been doing this our whole lives we, I love, I love creating art. It makes me, it, it's why I wake up and breathe. And finding out that there's another way for me to actually put it out there is, you know, everything. There's also a lot of backlash that artists are receiving based on the carbon footprint that NFTs causes. So I don't know if you know, but minting one NFT on the Ethereum network is equal to like 57 years worth of electricity. I just analyzed 18,000 NFTs. Creating one NFT uses 340 kilowatt per hour worth of electricity and leaves behind 200 kilogram of carbon monoxide. That's a huge environmental concern, but it's kind of like cars, like back in the day, like they were way less environmentally friendly and now you have hybrid cars that are totally on green energy. So I think it's a matter of time before we find ways to make the environmental impact like less of a problem and i'm sure there's so many people working on solutions Absolutely, so yeah. there definitely is some issues also with like it's expensive to mint right now so i recently minted a piece on foundation and it cost me 150 bucks just to list it do you think that nfts can at some point destroy the traditional art as we have it today or is uh, or nfts you think are going to transform i think art. nfts are already transforming art i don't think you can really knock traditional art out of the way it's been through history it's been like that forever people are always going to want something tangible i still will purchase something tangible if i have the money to do so um i think it's just a new form of art it's elevating it to a level i've never seen before people are still so in awe and shock of just like how transformative it transformative it is and there's still artists in there who still have like their full-time jobs that are still doing art full-time they're never going to stop that i don't see tangible art going anywhere soon i think it's almost like you have ebooks but most of us still prefer like real hard copy books because example. of the look and feel so you always have that but at the end of the day i don't think you can replace it i do know like for me personally when i start selling physical art i think i would do something like a qr code that links to the nft that way you can verify the physical painting. Kind of like how you were saying about Pokemon right. cards. Yeah. If they that's encrypt right. yeah. like the NFT like code into the physical thing, now that's a way to keep authenticate your physical work. So I do think an NFT technology will merge with physical art, but it won't replace it in any way. 
You can sell your physical art with your NFT too, sure. right? There's like yeah. unlockable features you can attach sure. to your NFT. So as soon as you purchase it, you have an unlockable feature yeah. that you can ship out an actual painting to the collector. But I do think that art is only a very small fraction of what NFTs are going to be used for. I can see it being used for real estate, for high fashion, for birth and death certificates. I heard on the news recently somebody got married and they used... Like they had their wedding rings on the blockchain. They minted their marriage. They minted their marriage, literally, so that it's just a way of like authenticating something on the blockchain because then this transaction is transparent and it's there forever. So I do think like art is one starting point, but you're going to see NFTs and their technology in every single area. They can't get a divorce anymore. It's in the blockchain. <laughs> it's been registered and verified and this is some good luck hacking yes. into that and deleting it dude i want to get married on the blockchain do you all right guys thanks for joining me on the first episode it was a blast thank god thank you, thank you. To have you guys back absolutely and i hope to learn from you guys more yeah thank you so much for having us all right it's a wrap for the first episode on the second episode i will dive in deeper into how to get started and i'm also going to tell you the do's and don'ts of nft because nothing new is ever perfect and there are some negatives that most youtube videos and podcasts do not talk about so stay tuned and stay magical Next, a Brampton man who is really making a difference in his community. Hi, and welcome back to a new edition of Do Your Thing. And I'm your host, Janelle Pantlets. On today's episode, we're talking about an individual who's doing remarkable things in their community. And today that person is Steve Kirk, who also goes by the name of Powerful Steve. And he is a resident of the city of Brampton, Ontario. Some may ask, what can Steve not do? After all, he is a man of many titles. And some of those titles include Arthur Tivios. Um, I also am an ambassador, a peace ambassador for Canada that's accredited by uh, the United Nations. And essentially, if there's any kind of calamity that's going on in the world and they need peace ambassadors, I can be called on to go to any parts of the world and be that. I am a uh, track and field coach for 18 years. I am a husband for 32 years, uh, a father of eight children. Um, uh, oh, I'm, I'm an actor. I, I've, I've written eight books. I've published two of them, and I will be publishing the other books as well. I, I, I'm a writer, film, production, producer. In addition to that, Steve also donates to the homeless population in Brampton, and he has since decided to start his own nonprofit organization. And the name of that is All One Mission. Well, first and foremost, we started out by uh, food and water. We were serving the community. I went to No Frills, I bought cases of water, and I started to give out uh, cases of water to individuals on the street. I'm actually in the film industry, and so when I was on set, if you ever go 
on a film set. They have smorgasbord of food. And I just saw all this food going to waste. So I asked one of the managers one time, I said, listen, uh, I, I have some homeless people that I give food to. Uh, can I take some meals? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. And so he gave me a few meals and I was actually serving around six individuals. They would meet me at Tim Hortons and I would like have dinner for them. And then uh, what happened is the other people learned and then they started giving me more food. And so I was actually serving a group, uh, a larger group of people. And then what happened was a friend of mine got in connection with an organization that was giving them food on the regular. So she called me up and then I became a part of the organization called Fruitful House. And so on Saturdays and Wednesdays, Wednesdays. It's in Mississauga. I go down there and I pick up food. They literally fill my, my van and then I just drive around on the streets of Brampton and I just feed the homeless. Steve's NGO All One Mission is currently only funded by him and no outside donations. However, he is hopeful that as more people find out about what he's doing, he will begin to receive more and more donations. Um, and another person that is heavily benefiting from Steve and what he's doing in the community is someone named Jason. When I first met Steve, I was homeless and he was running for council. And uh, since then, uh, he's helped me and hundreds of others. But I got an apartment and Steve took me to uh, food bank slash church. Yeah. And uh, helped me get food for my house, and then helped me get so much food that I was able to help others because of it. And uh, for as many people that there that there is, have no idea the goodness in this person that people turn a blind eye to. Kiara Webb is a 15-year-old track and field athlete that Steve coaches. He has helped me tremendously in three aspects, mentally, spiritually, and physically. As a coach, he trains the physical mind, the mental mind, and the spiritual mind. And so he's helped me in all three of those areas. He is a very interesting person. He's very unique and one of a kind. You definitely will not find another one of him anywhere. Um, but that's what makes it fun to work with him and fun to be around. It seems to be no secret that individuals in Brampton has nothing but great things to say about Steve and the work that he's currently doing in his community. I'm very, very passionate about helping people move from zero to hero. And what I mean by that is for you to discover your maximum potential and giving you the opportunity to leave a legacy, not only for yourself, not only for your children, but for society in a whole. And that is it for this segment of Do Your Thing. Again, I'm your host, Janelle Pantlets. Until next time. Next up, getting help for trauma victims. Hello and welcome to the Save Radio News Podcast. This episode, we are looking into counseling for victims of crime and trauma. Are there enough resources for them to seek mental health assistance? Has social media impacted the way we view mental wellness and seeking help? Has it made it worse? Is there still an age-old stigma surrounding victims seeking help? Has much changed in the last 30 years? Let's explore these questions and more in this episode 
I'm your host, Caitlin Hartley, and let's dive in. It feels like since the dawn of time, there has been a stigma surrounding mental health that has made it even harder to want to seek help. This stigma that surrounds it can come from friends, coworkers, family, even partners. Along with stigma, counseling resources for victims of crime have been barriers to those seeking help or who need it the most. When Priscilla de Villiers lost her daughter to a violent crime in 1991, she was troubled by the limited resources that were available to victims of crimes and trauma. Now, she is co-founded the Victim Justice Network, which is a network dedicated to linking resources with victims so that they may seek help. She realized very quickly that she ended up talking to other people in their time of need, rather than maybe they, them going to a specialist or a therapist. With her efforts, it can still feel like an uphill battle for victims of crime to find the help that they do need to begin their recovery process, which has led me to wonder, what are the factors of this? Is it still stigma or are there still resources needed despite the last 30 years of improvement? I sat down with Mami Kalambe, a therapist who works with trauma victims to get her take on the issue. So just how has counseling or therapy changed to better help victims over the past few years? Uh, yeah, so I guess, um, especially in terms of um, more awareness that's been available, uh, especially with the pandemic, a lot of people realize how mental health has, uh, is like really important and can have a, a big impact on different individuals' lives. Uh, so in terms of having more awareness, um, there's also been, you know, getting more access to therapy as well. It is what I've seen and noticed in my practice. And um, having that opportunity for somebody to speak with someone that they that can understand them, that's not going to have judgment. How do you think that social media has changed the way that mental health is seen? I think social media has been important in terms of the, the awareness piece. Uh, things like, you know, mental health, they, um, maybe some people are just posting about that on those, those days, but it's still, uh, information being passed around, right? So, uh, a lot more I tend to see even access to therapists and be able to see, uh, some therapists that are posting a little bit more, um, not personalized, but, you know, their day-to-day or having information about, you know, what it's like to, to be in therapy, that sort of information. I think with social media, we are we having more access to information, to awareness, as well as uh, other therapists that you could get a hold of, especially for that generation that is, you know, more going to use more social media than maybe going on a website. Yeah, and I completely agree. Like every year around it's Bell Let's Talk. I'm like yeah. it's it's like it's just such a good job at raising awareness, I find at least. So I find that my generation, because social media also has come up so much, it's like, yeah, we talk about it a lot more than say my parents' generation. <laughs> the stigma is still there, but it's becoming more understandable to deal with uh, some of those mental health issues. 
And going off of that part, like how much how much of a part does stigma play in say like a victim of trauma when they want to go seek help? Do you think that stigma is still impactful? If you you don't feel like your friends or family are going to be able to understand or have that acceptance, you might be embarrassed to reach out to a therapist, right? Sometimes I have clients that live with their family in their household, but they don't tell them that they're in therapy. Uh, They just sort of say, you know, I have a a doctor's appointment or uh, some other appointment, or they don't even mention it. Uh, And it's... It makes it hard for them, especially when the pandemic hit and you couldn't go to an office to see your therapist. Maybe you had to do it in your room. Uh, or if you live in a one-bedroom apartment, for instance, I had clients that had to take their meetings in the car because they didn't want to let their partner know that they were in therapy. So uh, sometimes because of that stigma, even though you're, you dealt with trauma and you're having all of these issues and you know that if you need the help, it may still be something that stops you from getting that help. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's... I mean, if only it could not be around anymore, but I feel like it's gotten at least a little bit better. So hopefully that trend will just keep going. Um, And then in your opinion, do you feel that there are enough resources for victims of trauma or crime uh, who are seeking the mental health assistance? I would say there is way more than before, but we still have a, a long way to go. Um, you know, insurance companies recently have opened doors to maybe way more professionals, for instance, when it comes to uh, getting um, benefits coverage. You know, a lot of the times some companies only give it to psychologists and it will be maybe for five sessions. That's not going to do far uh, for somebody that's been dealing with trauma. So there is a lot more opportunities and, and accessibility. Um, but I, I think especially it would depend on your finances as well, right? So maybe uh, somebody who is has more financial uh, stability, it, it would work and be okay, but other people in maybe lower income uh, families and things like that might have more trouble finding, you know, a therapist or resources. So definitely some, but um, I need more. Yeah. More would be better. Special thanks to Mommy for th- in this episode for her professional take on the matter. Just as Mommy said, a lot of improvements have been made since the time of limited resources for victims of crime and trauma, but there's still work to be done. Thank you for listening to this episode of Save Radio News Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Caitlin Hartley. Tune in next week for another episode. And until then... Have a great day and stay safe. And finally, a woman talks about how she overcame her bad habits with food and how she's sharing her success. I'm Sabah Ahmed and welcome to the episode of Mission Motivation. I come from a family where food is considered sacred. Our family mantra is to work hard and eat even harder. We do not let any moment pass by without a reason to eat delicacies. 
family meal times also help parents to peek into the lives of the children now as the societies are becoming more individualistic the ritual of family meal times is becoming less common young adults prefer quick fixes or takeaways which prevents them from engaging in conversations that help in their mental growth now today we have with us ruvina jasal and she published her first book mirror mania in 2020 when she realized that her relationship with food was not healthy as a young girl i always wanted to express myself and i always knew i wanted to write a book and you know here i am today as a writer so i finally got to make those dreams come true do you think social media is affecting how young girls view and treat their bodies i think when we look at social media it's very difficult to realize that social media is not reality and especially young girls who are constantly on social media quick scroll you know in between class or just maybe they spend an hour scrolling through tiktok videos and and all of that influences the way that you think about yourself every media you consume influences your own image that is the mental diet in a sense which is connected to how you feel about yourself physically and i think specifically photoshop is a very popular thing people don't talk about it as much but photo editing i know a handful of people who just use instagram just for fun and they edit their photos because they are very self-conscious and this causes a lot of young girls to want to do the same you know they see the perfect body and the body standard is constantly changing see what it was in the 2000s was like this flat but flat everything but now it's the complete opposite and girls they feel like they have to continuously pursue this goal of the perfect body because that's what they see constantly on social media how did you control your obsession with the control diet Um I I knew I just could not diet anymore and I knew I'd always been a healthy person and I my mom taught me thankfully she taught me healthy habits growing up and I just went back to that you know I stopped obsessing about how many calories I was eating how many if I was eating too many carbs or just like eating too much and eating too little I began to trust myself and accept myself and how i wanted to eat <clears throat> and how i wanted to um fuel my body and i looked up you know this principles of intuitive eating which is a very mindful way of eating and it's just connecting to what is it that you really want to eat do you really want to eat raw carrots or would you rather have you know a few chips and a few carrots and it's about finding what is working in terms of a balance for myself did you share your problem with someone i mentioned to my close friend i told her very vivid details of everything and she told me that she had also gone through similar things and another friend of mine opened up about editing her photos and once i realized this was something people go through and more importantly these are people these are young teenage girls developing girls who 
are being told to constrict themselves physically and mentally and once I realized that I was like what are we doing you know like our generation is supposed to be furthering our development as women and our parents the generations before us have done the work for us to do this and I just felt like a need to put this story out there put my story out there so other people could come forward and other people could feel like they weren't alone in however they want were feeling Ravina, how do you feel about your journey? I think I've definitely come a long way. Um, I published the book in late 2020, um, early 2021. And I, it was my first book. It's my baby. It always will be. And, you know, I think when I was writing the book, I was like, oh, no, I have this idea. I have that idea. I want to write about this book instead. And I think the fact that I stuck with this and, it's something very close to my heart and it physically embodies um, something I've went through in my life. I think that having that book there is just a semblance of my journey and all the other journeys that people are, continue to go on. And I want to continue using my book to help people with those journeys. Um, you know, I've had people already tell me that they finally felt like um, they weren't alone in their struggles. And I've had other people, you know, that I've never even met in person telling me that, like, it felt so good for them to finally be honest with themselves and to, like, finally feel free from the constraints of their own mind, really, about what they should look like. and and who is trying to put this pressure on them. Thank you, Ravina. It was a very enlightening session. Thanks for tuning in, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Mission Motivation. Thanks for joining us. If you want to hear more Seneca student podcasts, go to SenecaJournalism.ca. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.